This is Series 3 of Brave New Girl Podcast, and I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, author and illustrator of Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless. I welcome you to the stories of real-life Brave New Girls, who are creatives, founders, campaigners, health practitioners, and thought leaders, all making a positive impact in the world. This week's guest is Michelle Kirsch, author of Clean, 2020 winner of Christopher Bland Prize, this darkly comic memoir is about how, after losing her father in a train crash when she was a young girl and given prescription drugs to numb the grief, her life became one of addiction until she decided to start cleaning up, leading us on the scenic route to rehab, redemption and reinvention. Welcome, Michelle, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm very well today, thank you. Very well. We've managed uh, to get through some kind of technical hitch. <laughs> that modern world stuff, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, if if a pandemic wasn't bad enough, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so how have you been managing in the pandemic, um, both with work, cooking, and with uh, with writing your book, promoting your book? Actually, as pandemics go, not that I have vast experience of multiple pandemics, this being the <laughs> first, but this pandemic was um, not so bad. I didn't get ill, which was the main thing. Um, nobody that I'm very, very close to got very ill or, or died, which is a, a good thing as well. But the, the thing about um, my book is about addiction and recovery from addiction. And one of the things that addicts do is love to stay home and do drugs. Like that's, that's our go-to thing, that's what we do. So the pandemic was a real danger point for a lot of people in recovery. However, it wasn't for me. I just, I quite liked, for the first couple of months, I, was, I had been working as a chef and they put me on furlough and I thought, this is amazing. This is, it was summer, it was free money. I had quite a lovely time, you know, going to the park, sunbathing. Um, it was not bad. And then, you know, as everybody with the pandemic, it got kind of boring. And then they called me back to work and I was grateful for that. The whole way of my workplace had changed. So we weren't really doing so much, you know, serving the customers, you know, coming in to eat. We were, I was working as a chef. We were doing takeaway. It's a whole different vibe completely. You know, you're, you're giving food to guys with great big motorcycle helmets, taking it off to some anonymous destination. And you just feel... Oh, I don't know where this is going. I don't know it's going to, I don't know. It just, I got less shifts and it wasn't working for me anymore. So the pandemic for me has been a time of reflection and thinking about, I've got about another eight or nine, eight years to work before I can do the pension thing. So what am I going to do? How am I going to make this useful? And also I did some voluntary work during the uh, pandemic. In the beginning, I was all like, okay, I'm going to help society. I'm going to save people. So ironically, I wound up being a bicycle courier uh, for pharmaceuticals <laughs> for, for um, people who needed drugs. And I thought, oh, this seems really familiar, <laughs> except I'm on the other side of the equation. Like, okay, so I'm bike, um, cycling drugs, which people need. And there was a time when cyclists were coming to me bringing me drugs that I needed as well. So there was kind of a reverb there. And the other thing was, I'm absolutely horrible at directions. 
So, you know, people will say, oh, you know, just check in Google Maps and you'll find it. So I would have like four or five drops to do a day. And then I say, no, 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 I need a day to prepare for this, to go home and, and, and contact Transport for London and find out the best way to go. I can't just like get on a bike and go. That doesn't work for me. So I was working not to my strengths, to my, to my weaknesses. I eventually found my roots, but it took a very long time. And it was probably less helpful than more helpful in trying to be a good person and doing voluntary work. But overall, it was not a bad, it was not a bad lockdown. And I read somewhere you you tried uh, being a carer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was very recent. So then I, you know, they gave because I, then when I left the chefing job, then I was um, on a job seekers allowance for a while. And I thought like, oh, well, I'm a very kind and caring and patient person like I And they need carers because all the carers have become nurses in hospitals. So like this is a very useful and good thing to do during the pandemic. So I, I, I trained for that, and then I shadowed other workers in this area for about a week. And actually, there's such a, a, a differential between the reality of the job and this stuff in theory. So, you know, the theory stuff is, you know, you see those pop-up adverts where you're sitting in a really sparkling brand uniform speaking to a person who's quite elderly, who's laughing hysterically at whatever you said. You know, you could say, like, the whole world's on fire and we're all going to die and they're still going to be laughing as long as you give them a cup of tea. It's fine. But that's not actually how caring works. What caring actually is in the modern world through an agency is going to somebody, or first of all, finding somebody's place in a completely hard to find place on an estate that you can walk around for five hours and not find. Then getting to their flat late, then they're cross with you. Then you, you have a list of tasks to do which is change their incontinence pads, change their bedding, give medication, feed. Feeding means whacking a bowl of porridge in a microwave. It, it, it completely was not like the advert said it was going to be. How stupid of me to believe the advert. And I did it for a week and a bit, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, I thought this was my vocation, my calling in life, because I'm so kind and compassionate but I, I can't do this because I only have an hour to do this and I spend half an hour being lost. So it's going to happen. So actually, as we speak today, this morning, I wrote them my resignation letter and I said, I use like the, the, the speak that they use in like, you know, employment land. I said, I don't think I'm a good fit for your company. <laughs> a good fit. That's always like the word. So, but it, that doesn't mean I'm giving it up completely. I would like, I would still like to do something in that capacity, but not just whack in there for an hour, throw, you know, change the, change the incontinence pads, give medication, give food, you know, say, hi, how are you doing? And then log it all in on your phone and go out again and, and, and then do it for somebody else. Like it's, 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 um, it's quite a shoddy operation, but Having said that, it does work for some people, and some people get get it down really well. And they're heroes. I think they're brilliant. It's just not for me, unfortunately. I'm not. I'm not fast enough, and I'm really. I've got no radar whatsoever for finding places. Somebody can give me directions, and they'll say, "Take a left here, take a right there, take a left there," and I'll nod as if I understand what they're saying. But it's not going in, <laughs> and it just doesn't work. So I think a really good carer would be a Deliveroo person. <laughs> And they bring a pizza as well. So, like, it's win-win, right? Oh, dear, yeah.
can see how that could work. <laughs> being good at directions and being able to deliver food. So when did your book come out then? So the book came out in 2019 and it was, it, it, the book was not even, a, you know, the intention was not even to write a book in the first place. I was just writing down things that were happening to me every day. So I had been, um, as the book chronicles, I had been, unfortunately, I was addicted to prescription drugs, which I was given as a child in America. Uh, you know, and I, I'm not blaming big pharma. I'm for big pharma. They got the vaccine. Hurrah. I'm not against that. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not even against drugs. I'm just against the drugs that I really liked, which happened to be prescription drugs. And um, I started, uh, so unfortunately the addiction got out of control and I needed to do a detox and a rehab. And I did that. Very luckily I was sponsored by my council. It, it's like, it felt like being on telly, you know, like this is sponsored by, you know, Clairol. This is sponsored by my council. You know? So I did that and I, I got off the drugs, which was amazing and brilliant because I've been on them most of my life. And by this time I was, I was like 50, but I didn't know how to do life without drugs. And I didn't know how to do the job I had done before, which was journalism without drugs. So I just thought, okay, I'm just going to start from rock bottom. You know, I'm going to work in restaurants you know, as a, a glass washer, which is exactly what I did, you know, for, and then see if I'm, I can be, a, a, you know, a worthy member of society or useful in any way whatsoever. So, you know, I did, I did that for a while. And then I started writing about it because everything, even the most boring stuff is really interesting to me. And I think that's really my strength. Like I like, I kind of like that metronome banality of doing things over and over and over again. I can still find a kind of weird fascination in that. And everybody who worked in restaurants at the time, probably not so much now because of Brexit, was from someplace else. So I would grill them like, where are you from? And like, how did you get here? And what happened? Because I'm really a nosy Parker deep down. And I was taking notes all the time. And then eventually the notes became a book and then I left restaurant work or I was supplementing the restaurant work with cleaning work as well and I thought well I'm clean and I'm getting clean well that's quite clever so I can meld these two things together and was blogging about cleaning other people's houses which um, very stupidly I thought oh the people that I clean for will never read this so I can write about their personal stuff and they won't get angry with me that was not the case <laughs> <laughs> that they, they they did find out that I was writing about them and I did get sacked from a couple of jaws, but I just thought, ah, nah, they're not going to read my blog. They're just going to think I'm just somebody who's cleans our house and doesn't do anything else. But I, I was writing about it. So you were writing the blog and then the blog became a book. And what's interesting in the book is that you alternate these little scenes um, from a different from each different place that you clean so that's kind of peppered through the book in sort of present time you know when when the book yeah. was written what sort of yeah. uh, 2015 to 2019 and then in amongst those sort of diary writing journalings you then write the story of what happened to you um, going right back to to the beginning and so 
the beginning of all of this sort of prescription drugs was was that your father was was killed and then at that time instead of giving you therapy they thought the best thing was to to give you subscription drugs so can you tell us a bit about that beginning so i was six when my father was killed my mother just sadly lost the plot she couldn't really function very well and i don't blame her or you know say oh gosh it's all about my mum she was just very, very in love with my dad and the loss was enormous and she didn't really know how to navigate life as a single mum. She was from Liverpool, she moved to New York to be with him and it, it was just all strange and foreign and odd to her. So she was put on some sort of very heavy, heavy medication. And then a few years down the line, so was I because I found I was unable to function. I wasn't able to go to school, I wasn't able to eat. I was unable to do like the normal things that kids did. I was absolutely paralyzed with anxiety. And I had some kind of form of kitty Valium. I don't even know what it was called, but that's what I was given then. And then when I was old enough, they gave me the grown up version of Valium. And I, and Valium was wonderful. It absolutely did what it said on the tin. It, it made me, you know, not afraid and it made me able to go to school and do normal things. And so, because everybody in New York, this was the 70s, everybody in New York was on something. And uh, I, I, I know that sounds about a bit, it sounds a bit like Prozac Nation, but it really was the way it was at the time. So you would, you know, I'd be on the F train or whatever, going to, you know, later on going to work. And I'd sneeze. And that like three women next to me would say, oh my God, do you want a Valium? You know, it was just like, it was so normalized that we didn't think it was weird or wrong at all. And then, you know, much later on, I moved to England and I had my own family and I had children and my my habit was creeping up slowly, but surely. And and in those days as well, I was still getting things from the doctor. But and then in I think it was 2008. I should know this date, but I don't know exactly. Uh, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which was called NICE, they realized, oh my gosh, these things are super addictive and there are loads of people on them, you know, taking them like sweeties or smarties and we've got to get them off them. But we don't know how, so we're going to only allow doctors pr to prescribe them for two weeks. And then I knew I was in trouble because I couldn't get them anymore but by the normal respectable channels, going to the doc, having a nice chat, They'd pull out the green pad, you know, type it up, and that was it. And so I had to find other ways and means, illegally, of getting the drugs that made me function. And did you find that your tolerance for them was increasing, so you needed stronger and stronger drugs to, to get the same sort of numbing effect? A hundred percent. And it wasn't, I have to, you know, I must be honest, for me it wasn't even numbing. It wasn't even just like, you know, walking through life as a zombie. It was just going from being on the ceiling with anxiety to coming down to a level of what normal to my, you know, to my eyes looked like. It, it was incredibly difficult and it was, it was probably during those years, probably in the um, late 90s, early, 2000, early 2000s that I realized, oh, I think I might be addicted. I might have a problem. And the fact that I freaked out so much when they changed the prescribing rules and and i had to go to um it's called on the street it's called the dirty doctor 
So they're a doctor who may work out of the back of a pharmacy and they're not quite legit. They have the qualifications, but they're not really quite legit. And I found some guy and I, and I stood in the queue. They said, oh, you know, go to this place in this street and like go to the pharmacy and pretend that you need a jab for, uh, you know, foreign country travel or something. But if you just give him a code word, he'll give you what you need. And I was standing in this queue in my like Bowdoin housewife Gar, you know, stuff with all these women who look like either it's probably not PC to say, but I thought like that Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other. And that was me. Like, and I got in there and the doctor said, like, why, why are you here? Because you don't look like the other people who are in this queue. And then he, before I even said anything, he said, oh, I get it. You're just like a sad housewife on Valium. And he reduced my entire life to that. <laughs> but he was correct. He was right. And, you know, I did that for a few years. So you were functioning. You were, you were a mother of two children. Yes. You were going to the school. You were doing those things. Um, but you were adding alcohol to the of, of the, the medications. And, and so what was that starting to look like then? That was looking chaotic and terrible and finding me on the floor in various um, circumstances and not remembering how I got on the floor or how I got off the floor. And I remember there was there were there were a few times even because the reason why one of the reasons why I started taking um, uh, these drugs in the first place, because I was quite agoraphobic, I was very afraid of travel and going places. And this was really useful for that. And I learned about there's a word called potentiate. And this word means that it enhances the effect. So if you take this, it will enhance effect, the effect of the drug that you take. So I was taking Valium and my friend who sadly passed away from AIDS, um, he was getting every drug that he wanted. They, they said, well, you're dying anyway. So whatever you want, if you want heroin, we'll give it to you because you're dying. So they gave him as much Valium as he wanted. And he, he then gave them to me and my sister. And then um, he said, oh, if you can't get enough or they're not working, just take a couple of shots of pure, neat spirits, and then it will double the effect of the medication. And at the time I thought, oh, thank you, Drew, that's like the best tip ever. And then in later years, I thought that's the worst tip ever I got in my life. That's such a bad idea because it's so effective. It really does work. And then you become this kind of like, walking, talking, but not singing and not famous and not rich Judy Garland, you know, just being drinking drugs and like dragging yourself around doing these things, but not, it's not enhancing your life and your, yeah, you know, that's kind of when I became more of a zombie. That Those were really bad days. And it was sadly really affecting my children. Of course, who wanted a normal mom and sadly my husband as well. And my solution to that, you know, to alleviate their pain was was to leave them. Mums don't do that. It's never the mums who leave home. It's the dads who bugger off, you know, like I've met a woman or I'm tired of this or whatever. Like mums don't leave their kids. And I did that because I thought it would be better for them because I was not adding anything to the family life. And now we're all good friends again and it's all really good. They're grown up, but... And we talk about that time and they agree that that was the right thing to do. 
the right thing to do at that time was to leave, even though there's such a taboo against it. Like, mums don't leave. They just don't. Was it solely to alleviate their pain? Or were you thinking that that might be a way for you to start coming off the drugs? Or was that not in your mind at that point? Oh, that was completely in my mind. And in fact, that was that was the intention was to, okay, I'm going to go and do, I'm going to live in, like I found the last bedsit ever, probably in England, for about 60 pounds a week. This was 2000 and late 2010 to early 2011. I went into a newsagent and I saw an advert for a bed set, £60 a week. It was The reason why it was £60 a week was because it was basically uninhabitable. There was, it was just a bed in a room that was used to be a freezer for a butcher's, which is hilarious because I'm a vegan. But, you know, uh, now, but and I just thought, okay, I'm going to lock myself in the room. I'm going to do kind of a train spotting detox. I'm going to get myself all this stuff. And then like a couple of months afterwards, I'm going to go back to my family and say, here I am, I'm back, I'm better. Really sorry about all that, but I'm okay. But that didn't work because once I was in the bedsit and I didn't have all the responsibility of being a mom and a wife and working, what I was working at was at the time was journalism. I just thought, oh, nobody will see me if I do more drugs and I drink more like it's I have I'm not accountable to anybody at this moment in time so it was a really really bad idea and I did that for about a year a bit more and a friend who worked in this area in recovery and rehab said I think maybe you're gonna die and I think that you need to go somewhere to get off this stuff and I was like, oh, I'm not gonna die I'm not gonna die and and uh because I really didn't believe that. I just thought I would be very ill and kind of fade away and lay, you know, like a tubercular patient on a bed all day. But I didn't think I was going to die. And my friend had connections and she knew how to find the, you know, help me because I was incapable of doing most things. She figured out how to get me help. And then you have to go through loads of interview processes. And eventually I wound up in a rehab and Bournemouth, which saved my life. Um, and when I came back from that, I was clean off the drugs. For anyone that is, knows anybody that needs to go through this process. So when you arrived there, did you have any expectation? Did you just kind of throw yourself into it? Or, or were you feeling that you were different from the others? What was your sort of thought process as you slowly worked your way through the, the rehab? Oh, all of the above, all of the above. I thought I was completely different from the others because everybody else was like either a street alcoholic or on crack or on heroin or, you know, like not, you know, drugs that like, you know, people took on the streets. And like, I was just like a little sweet old housewife who, you know, was given Valium by her doctor. So I just thought, I'm not like you. And that's a really bad mistake because I was exactly like them. I just took a different drug. It didn't really matter. And the other thing was um, that I, it, it occurred to me later was that because I had been on this for most of my life, I didn't really know how to do life not on it. So I needed a template, a new, uh, I hate this word because I just used it yesterday. And I, yeah, I kind of needed a new roadmap for how to do life not on drugs. And they gave me a bit of that. 
but not entirely. It, it, it definitely broke the cycle. It got me off it physically, which was painful and horrendous. All the people who came off heroin came off in five days. People who are on benzodiazepines, which is the group of drugs that I was on, it normally takes six to eight weeks. So once you're off the drugs, you have this kind of graduation ceremony and they give you a certificate, you know. And everybody who came in at the same time as I did, they got their certificate in five days. And I got, I was like the slow child. <laughs> and I got my certificate in, in, you know, in about six or seven weeks. And I actually got a standing ovation when I got it. Like, Michelle is off drugs. It's a miracle. <laughs> But it doesn't, it, it was brilliant in breaking the cycle, but it did not, it did not fix my life entirely. It gave me a plan how to fix my life. Um, and it also totally was not what I expected. I think um, I'd seen, I was obsessed with, with the child with the film Valley of the Dolls, where, you know, the, the film stars and the models and stuff get all hooked on uppers and downers from doctors like I did. They called them dolls. And then when they went to rehab, they were, it's, they went to these vast places in the South with rolling lawns and beautiful nurses who wheeled them around in the chair and apparently gave them more drugs to get off the drugs that they were on. And this wasn't like this. This was just walking around really cold beaches in Bournemouth with a bunch of junkies and feeling really sick. It wasn't my, it wasn't the way it was in the film. <laughs> it lied. Oh dear. And so did you, did you build a bond? Was there a community that built with those people who were going through that process with you? Yes, there, there definitely was a bond. There wasn't at first, there certainly wasn't for the first um, six weeks when I was still withdrawing and, and, and feeling absolutely awful. But um, there were, there, there was one point in rehab when I thought, this is my tribe, you know, the, the, these are my people. And it was one day when we went, um, we went on a day trip, which I found really hard because I was still really agoraphobic. So just getting in like the, the, the community van to go to do something fun was never fun for me. So it was, it, we were having an Indian summer. It was, it was the fall, but we were having this lovely day. So we went to the beach and we started this game of football. And then this little dog from this woman joined, joined the, the, the football game and bizarrely and funnily scored a goal one of the teams and we were terrible i mean we were people we were skinny as anything we were withdrawing we looked terrible we were pale and we were playing this game of football and i went to the woman to give the dog back to the woman and she said oh, well, how unusual what is it that draws all you people together are you part of a society or a club <laughs> and i said oh we're we're on drink and drugs and she went Find her, you know, come on now, let's go. Mummy says, come on now. You know, she wanted to get away from us as soon as possible. And at that moment, that first moment on this field trip, playing football with the dog, I felt, oh, this is my tribe. Like, these are my people. <laughs> so you went, you went back to London. And of course, as everyone finds when they come off anything, the things that they've come off were masking everything underneath and so you, you're not only having to start again with a whole new life you're having to start again with all of the problems that you would you had previously been taking drugs to avoid <laughs> so how did you do those two things start again and and deal with 
those feelings inside you? I did it really badly and I did it with lots of errors and I did it, it I found it immensely difficult. So when I came back clean off drugs, but the behavior that drove the drug using was the same. I was still um, restless and irritable and discontent and nervous as anything and everything frightened me. You just had to say boo and I would go through the roof and trying to present myself back to my children and my family and saying like, oh, I'm okay now. And they had to tell me actually, no, you're not okay. You're still not okay. You're not, you're still, you know, not behaving, you know, in, in, in a placid and, you know, normal way. And so that was very difficult. So I went back to, you know, various bedsets and I was, I was, you know, technically homeless. I was sofa surfing for a while and just, just trying to recalibrate, you know, in my very early fifties, like I have to figure all this out all again. Like I have this other life that I did, but it was on drugs and now I have to do this life and make it bearable and, and good for other people as well. The people that I've made, my children, and my husband, and, and sadly that relationship didn't last, but, um, you know, make life okay again. And that took a lot of, a lot of time, certainly at least five or six years, um, a lot of terrible, terrible jobs, um, and some good ones as well. Um, and just kind of learning, learning what, what normal people do. It was almost like, you know, reading a book, like how to, how to do life without drugs and, you know, having, having a template for that. And, and I had a couple of relapses, nothing, nothing very long standing, but, um, the relapses frightened me enough to make me realize I wanted to stay clean, even if that meant not really being the person that I used to be, definitely not, you know, not being a mum, you know, obviously I am a mum because I have children, but not being an active mum, not living with them, not being a wife, not doing the job I used to do, and just being this kind of reinvented person, you know, at the time, uh, polishing glasses in a big restaurant for eight hours at night and hanging out with all these young people and trying to stay clean, and then figuring out, oh yeah, but I'm still quite good at writing, I'm quite good at talking, and I'm, I still have an insatiable curiosity about people and life. And it was that that helped me find, it sounds really cornball, but it helped me find myself again. It made me feel kind of normal again, like, oh, this is still part of me. I'm still really nosy, I'm really curious, and this is gonna, somehow this will stand me in good stead this will work for me i haven't quite figured out how it's going to work yet but it will do so they were the pillars that you were able to put into the ground to then start rebuilding from that even if it was writing describing your day at work yeah that that was definitely it because even then um so when i started so i was doing the restaurant work i would often write about that and then when I started doing the cleaning agency work as well, I found I was so fascinated by the stuff that people have, the things that they choose to define themselves. And this was kind of around the same time is that everybody was getting into being minimalist and marry condo and get rid of this and just have five books and just have, you know, but those weren't the kind of houses I was cleaning. I was cleaning flats and houses that were cluttered and messy and had 
whole lives built of stuff. And I found that that made the job, which is cleaning is not a terribly interesting job, but people's stuff was very interesting because every object told a story. And some of the, you know, the student house cleans, which were really messy and you with big labels on them, like this is my food, do not touch it. And that, you know, the dynamic there, with, that was really interesting. But the, the, the cleans that I found the hardest and the most touching were in houses and families that looked quite like my life before I left my life. And so I would, you know, I would be cleaning the house of, you know, a young couple with two young children and the mum would be going on a day trip or, and the dad would be in theory doing DIY, but actually drinking beer and listening to the cricket, you know, like, and I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is not that my husband was like that, but that this is, this looks a little bit like my life used to look like. And I found those quite poignant and, and upsetting. So a really small example would be um, one thing that mums do is that when there are things to live upstairs that really belong, you know, they put them on the stairs with the expectation that somebody will bring them up to the room that the things live in. But that never happens. The things just stay on the stairs, the Legos, the, the pants, the, you know, the, the swimming stuff. And, the, you know, part of my job was to, you know, figure out the right rooms and bring this stuff there. And that stuff would would make me well up because I thought oh this is what I used to do for free this was part of my job description I I brought stuff up the stairs before I fell down the stairs of of life was the irony of cleaning and going clean getting clean very apparent to you at the time or was it more in retrospect when you were writing the book that you you saw the two sort of merging together yeah, I would say definitely the latter. It was in retrospect that I saw, oh, there's a link here between I'm cleaning and I'm, I am clean, you know, physically after I've drink or drugs like that. Oh, you know, because I've always been a writer, like that's a metaphor. Maybe I could, maybe I could play around with that. Maybe I can use that. And um, I, there were several versions of the book before the one that I eventually wrote came out. So one was just all lots of joined up cleaning stories and kind of like a, a travelogue through London and, and, and people's stuff. And then I realized like, actually, maybe this is quite invasive and I can't actually write about the woman who, you know, has a lamp that has a light switch shaped as a penis. And she thinks that's funny. And I, because that's, that's that, that seems like I'm making a judgment on her. That's her version of quirky and being wacky. And that's that was fine. And how, who am I to judge anybody's life having made such a monumental catastrophe, catastrophe of my own one? So, you know, I became a lot less judgmental about the cleans. But yeah, the, the metaphor and that there was something here that could be bigger and where I could use my old skills of writing became apparent as I was doing it. As I said, you have to do, for my, maybe not for everybody, but in my case, I had to do a lot of rote, just moving my body jobs, doing things, you know, that, like a metronome, click, clock, click, clock, doing the same thing every day to realize there's, there's something more here than actually the thing that I'm doing. Could you feel that there was a healing in the drudgery? Oh my gosh, what a great question. 100%. I don't think anybody asked me that. Because in drudgery, there is definitely a form of self-flagellation and punishment. 
that, you know, and if I, if I would go that on the rare occasions I was invited to a party in those years and I would go to a party and they would say, what do you do? And I would say, I wouldn't say, well, I was a journalist, but now I'm a blah or I do a bit of writing. I would just say, I'm a cleaner. And also sometimes I work nights polishing glasses at a restaurant and then they just wouldn't know what to say. Where do you take the conversation? Oh, how fascinating, because it's not fascinating, you know. Um, it, it fucks them, like, oh, you seem kind of articulate, so why are you doing this job? But let me tell you something. Most of the people who do jobs like that are incredibly articulate and have amazing stories, and they're not, you know, what, what we call a dumb job. It doesn't mean that dumb people doing those dumb jobs. Not at all. So, yeah, I found I found there was kind of, healing in getting up every day and having a routine and doing work that I found physically quite draining. And I slept the sleep of the just. So I didn't, I wasn't going to sleep in a drug addled fog. I was going to sleep because I'd been nine hours scrubbing things and hoovering things and lugging really heavy things about and making other people's untidy places tidy. I couldn't tidy my own life, but I could tidy theirs. And that was that was a good starting point for me. I'd, I'd get to my own life later. And then you did finally manage to heal the the gap between you and your children, and and your husband. And so how how did that come about? Wow, uh, I'm really good friends with my ex husband now. We he's he's you know he's a saint, you know, doing what he did, you know, and and you know. Well, I, I suppose I didn't really leave him any choice. I said, you have to do this because I can't do it anymore. And he did. You know, he manned up, he rose to the task, and he did a great job. And I have great kids. One is um, now 26 and one is 23. They're, they're fine. They're coping. They have great jobs. And we're, and we're very close. And the only thing that fixed that, well, well, actually, there were two things. One was time. There's There's a lot to be said for time, letting time pass. And the other one was letting them trust my recovery. So I didn't have to advertise every day like, oh, I didn't do drugs today. They just had to see the change in my personality and the change in my priorities. And I did that through a 12-step program, um, which it, 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 it not only gives you a design for staying off drugs, but it also gives you a design to live your life in a better way and just be kind of a nicer person not be a jerk and they had to have trust a few years of me not being a jerk to realize like this was how probably mum was going to be for life oh mum's not a jerk anymore so maybe we could hang out with her maybe we could start it very slowly going for coffees you know meeting them out meeting them for a couple of hours and now we speak every day and it's um it's absolutely the best gift of recovery is having that relationship not only back, but better than it ever was. When they're grown-ups, you know, like, it's, 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 a, it's a, such a cornball thing to say, like, oh, you know, my, my daughter is my best friend, or, you know, my son is up. But they kind of really are. I just adore them. And if I don't speak to them every day, I feel a bit bereft and, and weird. They're, they've, they've become remarkable and lovely adults. And absolutely no credit to me whatsoever all credit to their dad and i'm not being falsely humble humble there that was it was the case so patience and tolerance letting time pass 
and letting them know that you're you're trying to be a good person and um you don't always get it right but it's 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 progress not perfection while you were going through this process were you aware of the the first sort of few gestures where they they started to warm and and you could see the trust coming back in their eyes oh my gosh yeah that was um more, much more obvious with my daughter than with my son so we we decided that we were going to do um a zumba class together now she's a brilliant dancer and really well coordinated and i i have notions of being a great dancer and well coordinated but i'm actually really rubbish so we went to this zumba class together so everybody was moving to the left and I was moving to the right and everybody was spinning around to the left and I was spinning around to the right. I was crashing into other people, walls, raising the wrong way. And she and it gave her the permission to to laugh at me and say, Wow, you're you're really rubbish at this, <laughs> you know. And and with within the, and I said, Yeah, you're right, I am, but it's really fun and can we do it again next week and can I be rubbish next week? And and that that was a real change for us. That was a game changer for us. For my son, it was it was slightly different because, unfortunately, one of my relapses, which was over Christmas, after, ironically, I'd written a big article for a newspaper about how not to relapse if you're an addict at Christmas. And then I promptly did that exact same thing that I said, how not to do this. Do these 20 things and you won't relapse. I didn't do those 20 things and I did relapse. And my son came over and I was very high and drunk and he just was really cross with me. So then that took quite a while to un unravel and unpick. And we did casual things, you know, we'd go out, we'd go out for coffee or we'd go out for dinner, we'd go for walks or bike rides. And then when he realized I was changing, he just, he had to trust that he's very intuitive. He knew, you know, I was trying to make things right and, um, try try to be straight and, and 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 be normal and be present for him so even though he was in theory the easier kid because he never got very angry with me um he was harder to get back on side once i was clean because he saw me relapse and so where you are now you've got this amazing book that's come out brilliantly written and do you trust yourself to think forward do you have a vision for the future I do. I, I, I think um, the future for me is um, it's, it, it's quite unknown, but I, I trust I trust it enough to know that um, I shouldn't just do job like in working life, for example, I shouldn't just do jobs because I think they're worthy or they sound good on paper or they're martyrish. And, um, you know, that that I do have these other skills that I had forgotten about writing talking being with people just just being a good egg basically like the, these are things that i can bring to another job so at the moment i'm t um i'm part-time working at a recording studio and i started out doing journalism at the nma doing music journalism so it's it's really fun i feel i feel young again i'm, I'm in this room you, you know, I'm in this building where every room there's some, you know, there's some other sound. One room, one room there's jazz. Another room there's rap. Another room there's classical. There's and it's a very live and fun and happening place. And it's just part time at the moment. But I think okay, maybe this is my new home. And if it winds up not being, 
that's okay too. You know, I'm not, I'm not done yet. And I think that saving grace for me and for anybody is to constantly remain curious and never write, never, never dismiss anything out of hand because there's always a story. There's always something interesting going on if you can be bothered to look for it. And you can't, and because I'm not on anything, I'm even more curious and more nosy than ever. Don't, don't let me into your house because I'll poke through your stuff. You know, <laughs> everything is fascinating to me. Everything is interesting because it's kind of new. I wonder with your experiences and everything you've gone through and what you've learned, how would you define courage in terms of your experience? I think courage in my experience, and it's not kind of like the Hello magazine, like, oh, you're so brave to have come off drugs. And, you know, it's not that kind of thing at all, because you either do it or you don't. And I, I'm, I don't think courage comes into that equation. Courage for me is, is resilience. The two things are completely equal. So my excuse for using drugs was always because there was a death. My best friend died. I used drugs. Another really good friend dies. I, I, I used drugs. It was always like having an excuse to not function because I couldn't cope with what life was throwing at me. So courage is about re resilience and facing bad things and facing difficult things and saying, okay, I can't control this, but I can, I can deal with it. And maybe I could even, in best case scenario, I could even grow with it. So I really, I really admire people. And I, I think people are courageous who um, maybe they get fired from a job and I've been fired from loads of jobs or maybe something really, you know, there's an illness in their life and, you know, we're faced with a lot of that, a lot of big changes in the pandemic. And you just say, okay, all right, well, that wasn't very good, but I can handle it and I can, I can, I can maybe do something else and it won't be, it won't be horrific. Um, I grew up in New York, between New York and Liverpool, and I used to love going to the big library in New York, which has, you see in all the movies, and it's got the big lions in the front. And one of the lions is called patience and the other line is called fortitude. And to me, that is, you know, the epitome of courage, like being patient, waiting for things, you know, realizing like now might not, not be so good, but tomorrow might be better. And fortitude is just the, the, the strength to believe that you, you can get through anything. We have, we have a card in recovery and it's called the Just for Today card. And, and it's a list of suggestions of things to do every day to aid and abet your recovery. And one of the th things that I love that it says is um, that I can get through the next 12 hours, no matter what happens in the next 12 hours. These things may ap might appall me. They might be awful. But I can deal with it for 12 hours if I think like, well, maybe the next 12 hours will be a bit different. That's positivity and resilience and courage to me. That's brilliant. Yes. Um, well, thank you so much, Michelle, for taking us on this journey of addiction, recovery and the removal of stubborn stains. I've loved reading your book. It's it's so funny and dark and and insightful and and I love that you've made your way through all of that you've been through to come out the other side. So thank you so much and goodbye.
Thank you very much, Lou. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Thanks so much, Michelle, for showing us that no matter how dark things get, it is always possible to clean up our act and find redemption, reinvention and resolution. Follow Michelle on Twitter at MamaKTrue, Instagram at Michelle Kirsch underscore writer. And you can find her book in all good bookstores. Thanks also to Podstar PR for producing the series and to you, our tribe, for listening. Download, rate and review on your podcast provider so that we can keep bringing you this free podcast. Goodbye for now and see you next time.